Welcome to Adventist Voices Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter. This week we continue on with the Dr. Larry Garrity interview, part two. Last week was part one, and this is part of our Legends of Adventism series kicking off the new year. Thanks to those of you who have reached out with footage, feedback, and helpful ideas for the future, especially the Department of English at La Sierra University, which sent this message to me. Thanks for this amazing interview. We're big Dr. Larry Garrity fans. And it is a testament to him that so many folks who have interacted with him appreciate the way that he works with people and expresses his values. Uh, this episode uh, continues where we left off uh, with him at Harvard University and moves into his time leading Adventist institutions like Atlantic Union College and La Sierra University. In it, he also shares some interesting anecdotes about the times that he has had to stand in the middle between denominational administrators trying to meddle with freedom of expression on college campuses and he, I think, provides some insight into that perennial challenge. In addition to that, um, he does have a Where's Waldo effect, uh, perhaps in Adventism, having been to every GC session since um, almost his birth. And he shares some of those stories um, as we continue on and ends with some helpful uh, life lessons um, on what it means to be an Adventist and how one um, deals with the tensions involved. Thank you so much for listening. And again, I appreciate your feedback and as always your support for Spectrum. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. Now, um, since we're here, uh, let's talk about um, fundable, fundamental belief number six. Uh-huh. <laughs> it has to do with chronology and also you writing. So um, how did you get involved it, uh, with um, th- that doctrine? Mm-hmm. Well, um, the General Conference... Uh, in preparing for the uh, upcoming session, which was in um, Dallas, I believe, 1980, um, wanted to update a statement on on fundamental beliefs, and um, they sent the somebody said, you know, why don't we share this document with the seminary professors, see if they have any comments, and when. This document was sent. The seminary professors uh, had a meeting, and they said, "You know, this won't work. We we can do better. Let, let's try our hand." So um, the a committee was formed to, um, to to work on a a statement of fundamental beliefs for the general conference, and various 
doctrines were assigned to various people, I, I happened to get number six, which turned out to be number six. And so the draft of that document was, was mine. And the philosophy was, let's use biblical language that we can all affirm. And so that's how that one was written, quote, quoting, you know, Genesis. Um, and um, I, I believe that Fritz Guy, who was the associate dean at that time of the seminary, was um, the one who was primarily responsible for pulling this together. But um, it turned out that the seminary was given the privilege of having one delegate to the general conference session. Um, there were, you know, the president, of course, of the university, and there were others who, who came from Bering Springs, but the faculty voted that I would be their delegate. So that's how I ended up going to, uh, to the session. And uh, Neil Wilson, of course, was president of the General Conference, and he, he um, uh, chaired the session every day as these doctrines were discussed. And various people, you know, would stand up and make their points. And he appointed a small committee to uh, work behind the scenes on evaluating the comments that were coming in and being made and seeing if any of them might be incorporated or adapted with, and, and uh, come up with a, a revision of these statements that would then come back to the floor and be voted. And so the various doctrines were handled that way until Friday afternoon, the very last one was the sanctuary doctrine. And um, there, there, was, there were discussions of number six, but it more or less uh, passed the way that we had suggested. But there was real problems over the sanctuary doctrine. And uh, I was invited to be a part of a small group. I think there were six or seven people uh, that were supposed to take into consideration what had come from the floor and see what could be done before sending it back. And in that little group, Friday afternoon, uh, the last Friday afternoon of the session, um, we couldn't we couldn't agree on the way that sanctuary doctrine was written up, and I said to the group, um, "When you read the text that we have lined up behind this doctrine, if you were to read all those texts, could you come up with the way this doctrine is worded?" And nobody answered that question. I said, I don't know if it bothers you, but it bothers me. I said, there's no way we can get this doctrine out of these texts. And Duncan Eva, who chaired this little session, said, Neil, Neil Wilson is wanting us to wrap up our work because it's Friday afternoon. The saints want to go to do their last shopping before they leave, get their souvenirs, get ready for Sabbath. Uh, you can hear he's, he's up there ad-libbing and, you know, uh, carrying on, hoping that we'll finish with this. 
So he said, the people out there have to have this statement the way it is, with the language that's in it. That's what they're used to hearing. That's what they want. Let's just go ahead and do that. And so that's how that doctrine came about. You know, just voted Friday afternoon, sent it out. It was voted and everybody went home. So I was, I was involved from the beginning and helping the group write it up. Then I was involved as a delegate to the General Conference in this little group that tried to revise things. And in general, I think it was a very worthy attempt. I was happy. Uh, you know, in the, in the way we did it, sort of a democratic way, you, there's give and take, and uh, you're not entirely happy with everything, but it's a community document, right? Um, and I believe that that was a successful venture on the part of the church, even though it has its flaws and it could be improved, but it was a consensus document. And with the prologue or the preamble to it, um, it makes it possible for us all to support it because it's our best attempt as a group. Unlike the way it was done in San Antonio, the last general conference session, when things were ramrodded through without adequate discussion and without the input of people that know something about it. At least that's my, my feelings. Um, that's really helpful to get that background. And it's interesting to me that you could be a part of, you know, two doctrines that you were talking about, the creation doctrine that you were involved with writing and then the discussion and, uh, at my, and then some edits during mm -hmm. that 1980 general conference session. And then also the sanctuary doctrine where you voiced some objections to it, but saw it kind of rammed through. Mm -hmm. um, and yet you still feel like the, the fundamental beliefs that emerged from that meeting with the very important preamble is, is good. Um, yeah. you know? I mean, it depends, of course, on how it's used, right? And when I say it's good, it's meant to be a consensus of what the church in general believes about these things. Not yeah. that it's perfect because it's subject to change, but if people ask, what do Adventists believe? Well, this, this is a fair, you know, uh, uh, document in, in those terms. What would be wrong is to make it a test of fellowship that you have to believe this just this way in order to be an Adventist, you know, and that's where we get into trouble. Um, as long as it's a description for people who wonder what Adventists believe, that's fine. But when it becomes a test, that changes the whole dynamic. Speaking of tests, let's go to a major testing time in Adventism, Glacier View. Mm. Uh, can you talk about your participation in that controversy and um, what, what you witnessed? Um, as a young seminary teacher, I was a delegate. <clears throat> um, I was not a, uh, I was not one of the central figures in that 
debate. I didn't <clears throat> write up any of the documents. I wasn't part of any small committee or anything like that. But I was, I came away from that experience um, very discouraged with the church. I felt that the outcome was predetermined and that we were used, scholars were used, to destroy the career of one of our colleagues who, while not perfect, deserved better treatment than he got. Um, so we're, we're down the pike 40 years from that experience. We can look back. Uh, Gil Valentine has uh, a very helpful review of all that in the latest spectrum that everybody needs to read because I think it, uh, in, in the light of the time that has elapsed since then, we can see much, much clearer that it was a, a, uh, a low point in denominational history. Yeah. About that time, I think you were, you moved into administration. Um, can you talk about how those two and um, perhaps others, but certainly Glacier View, that, that experience, that um, observation of, of administrators abusing their power um, affected you as you began your career as an administrator in higher education? Yeah, it, it's true that, um, in my view, Adventism's breadth uh, has begun to narrow, you know, um, and dissenters are, are being excluded. Um, denominational leaders are always policing the boundaries of what, you know, binds us together. And people who ask questions seem to be marginalized. And for me, the gatekeepers are losing their, their authority, you know. Hmm. And the seminary was becoming a very unhappy place to be because at, at the time I was there, uh, the dean made life difficult for anybody who didn't toe the line theologically. And about that time is when I got a call to be the president of Atlantic Union College. And that was the farthest from my mind. It's not a, anything I was seeking. Um, and when I, when I got the call, I said, I think you must be they have the wrong Garrity. <laughs> well, my, my dad's in the School of Education. He's the dean there. He's, he's the administrator. No, no, no. You're, you're the archaeologist. You're, you're the one we want, you know. I said, well, I've never even been a department chair. I don't know anything about administration. And they said, well, you know, you pull together a group of people 
on a dig and you raise the money and you get them to work together and they accomplish and you publish this and that. That's sort of what we need in our little college. We need somebody to do those things, you know. And so one thing led to another. And I thought I, I was having daily severe headaches from and they were tension headaches based on getting along with the authorities in my life in Marion Springs. So I thought maybe God's going to deliver me <laughs> from this <laughs> bondage by giving me a new responsibility that I don't know much about, but it's a new challenge, you know? And so one thing led to another and, and we moved to, to Massachusetts and immediately my headache stopped. Oh. And you would say as an administrator, you have increased headaches, right? Enrollment and budgets and personnel, but they were all things that I could tackle and do something about and have uh, the collegial help to, to make a difference, you know? Mm -hmm. And so those were, in my mind, they were good years at, at, at Atlantic Union College. I mean, we tripled the enrollment built a, a, a new important building for the campus. I loved the campus, the historic nature of it. I loved uh, the people that I worked with. I loved the location in New England. So that was all, uh, in my mind, a successful thing. I, I felt that I had let Siegfried Horn down because I left, you know, and he said to me, Larry, he says, I'm surprised that you stayed as long as you did. He oh, said, really? I, I wouldn't have. Hmm. He, and so that was very comforting to me that he understood the situation. Yeah. Um, and it was disappointing because he had hoped that I would spend my whole career uh, at Andrews. That's certainly what I had intended to do. But um, what I tried to accomplish at, at Andrews has has been um, uh, democratized in a way, and now there are several people involved in archaeology at different institutions, you know, and uh, it's been it's been all to the good. Um, can you talk about uh, or characterize uh, what your vision is uh, from your successful time at Atlantic Union College and then leading La Sierra? What, um, what do you, what did you, what drove your decision-making at those, or what's a through line between those two very different institutions on opposite coasts, but for you, what, what was sort of your guiding light as you made decisions, not just about personnel, but how, what the culture of the campus would be? Uh -huh. Well, I tried to be the kind of administrator that I wished I'd had at the seminary. You know, I thought I want to, I want to create an environment in which all these faculty members can succeed in what they're called to do. So that means facilitating them in every way you can. It's getting the right people together, having the right vision, working cooperatively as a group to assist one another, um, making sure that you have a compatible board and, 
a um, the resources to support these smart people who are given their lives to create a future for the church with the, these young people that are in our uh, care. So uh, knowing very little about administration, I just tried to do the opposite of what the administration had done for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and to the extent that I've succeeded, uh, I have the good people that have surrounded me mm. to thank. Mm. Um, you once relayed an anecdote to me about um, uh, a time when at least your board chair was not on board with something that you wanted to do at La Sierra. Do you mind um, telling me how you navigated that and and um, decided that that would be something that you uh, stood up for? Mm. Well, I've had uh, more, more than one of those kinds of experiences, but um, I think the one you referred to was when I got a call from my board chair saying that he understood there was a banner in the <clears throat> hanging in the library that celebrated the um, gay lifestyle, and it had to come down before the day was over. And I honestly didn't know that there was a banner there. I said, you know, I'll, I'll go up to the library and see what you're talking about. I'm not aware about that, and I'll, I'll call you back. So when I got up there, um, I found that it, it was like a quilt that was hanging on a, on a pole that had the names of um, alumni of La Sierra University who had passed away because, through AIDS. And this was the time when, you know, AIDS quilts were, were, were the thing. And remember when the Washington Monument, they, they laid out these AIDS quilts on the grounds and so on. So it was during those times. And so That's I thought, you know, some, right? some, yeah, some, some, someone has gone to all the work to make this AIDS quilt with La Sierra's alumni and the date of their death, their names and death dates and so on. There's no way I'm gonna take that down. Um, you can imagine the emotion that has gone into the production and the hanging of this by somebody, you know? So I wrote up a little um, notice that I pinned to the bottom of it where it hung down where a person would pass and could could easily read and it said something to the effect that the fact that this memorial uh banner is is hanging here is not an endorsement of a lifestyle but a recognition that the scourge of aids has hit our family or something like that you know and we we celebrate these lives. So I went back to my office and I called the board chair and I told him what the situation was and how I was handling it. He said, but Larry, I told you it had to come down. And I said, I recognize that. Um, and you're my boss. I respect your authority. 
but I'm the one who's on campus and I feel like I understand the situation and that I've handled it in a way that's supportive of your concerns, but that's also sensitive to the issue and to the people on campus and so on. Well, he said, I've warned you. To his credit, he never raised the subject again and nothing untoward ever happened, you know? But um, that's an illustration of responding to, you know, the kind of pressure, administrative pressure that you mentioned. Another time was when, um, you know, the General Conference voted against the ordination of women and Sligo Church decided that they were going to go ahead and ordain three of their women. And one of them happened to be my sister-in-law, who was uh, on the pastoral staff. And she struggled whether she should accept ordination or not. She didn't want to be a cause celebre. She just wanted to do her work quietly and effectively. Um, and so we had a lot of phone calls about that. She wanted to talk to me about the issue and how it could be handled and so on. And, uh, and in the end, she decided that she would accept the ordination. And in the process of working out the details of the service, each of the women was given the privilege of having choosing the person to introduce them during the service. And she decided that she wanted me to, to do that for her. So, of course, I felt that was a privilege. And uh, my wife and I made plans to go to Washington, D.C. for the service at Sligo. My board chair found out about it, and he called and said, forbade me to go to this service. And he said, Larry, you're, you, you would bring Lossier into disrepute. The General Conference has voted against this policy. We cannot have an administrator taking exception to that. And you'll destroy not only your own influence, but the influence of the campus that you've been charged to take care of. I said, I understand your concern and you are my boss. And if this is a deal breaker, I'll quietly steal away and you'll have no problem with me. It's nothing I'm gonna fight. But I said, I have to tell you that I am going to, to, do, to, to fulfill my responsibility that I've committed to. And I said, I understand that you have to tell me what you've told me because you need to tell your colleagues that you've labored with me and you've told me the right counsel and so on. But I said, I have to tell you as administrator of this campus that there are lots of young people who, if you want them saved for the church, want to see a leader who acts on principle rather than expediency. So I see my job as taking the kind of action that would encourage young people to stay Adventist and to be involved in the church. And so we have a different perspective, you know, on this issue. 
He said, well, I've told you what my counsel is. I said, I respect that. I went, and again, to his credit, he never raised the issue again. And I don't think it hurt Lassier's reputation or mine. <laughs> and so he told me what he needed to tell me, and I did what I needed to do, and we have stayed friends. Well, that's uh, as a young Adventist, I appreciate you standing up for these values. Um, and it's, I think, actions like that that have paved the way for um, hopefully increasing numbers of Adventists to uh, stand up for what they believe in and for administrators to realize that if they're opposing um, these acts of the Holy Spirit amongst us, that they're, they're really harming um, not just uh, themselves, but their, their entire legacies. As there's a great line in a, um, in a film about an Adventist called The Nostradamus Kid. It's an Australian oh, film from the 90s. Uh -huh. And uh, he says to someone, history will judge you harshly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, uh, I hope that, that history will um, see my attempts to be loyal to the church <clears throat> in a way that has... Um, caused it to be built up rather than torn down, you know. And I think rather than worrying about some of the issues that the church seems concerned with, we ought to ask the question, really, what's the gospel? What's the good news? What, what, what did Jesus want to do for us, you know? How did he lead during his life? Who did he pay attention to? Why did people respond to him, you know? And if we can answer those questions, that, that's what we ought to be doing. Extending the boundaries and being more inclusive and um, committing ourselves to those who've been often on the outside and who haven't had the kinds of support that they've needed to be successful in their relationships and so forth. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, um, that empathetic note. And it's been a honor to hear about your life, Larry. And thank you so much for your legacy of leadership in our community. Thank you. I'm honored to be a part, and I thank you for your own leadership in this. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move when the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely 